Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'm down to one field and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you're man. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. It's Murph and Ken here, and I'm sure, Ken, that first of all, you'd like to wish a happy new year to all, including to your many enemies and those who have fought you and lost so badly that they just don't know what to do. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, what better, sentiment, what better sentiment to open the, the new year than by gloating over my many fallen enemies. <laughs> Everyone's always trying to throw shade on people. Yeah. I don't know if, if you've noticed this, Ken. Yeah. I mean, I hope that 2017 is, is, is going to see a change in that. Yeah. But for now, it appears that the whole world is full of people just trying to take the gloss off other people's glory. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I heard you talking about Henrik Mkhitaryan on the show last week. Casting aspersions on the legitimacy of his scorpion kick goal. Well, the the legitimacy, yeah. I mean, it was an illegitimate, if beautiful, goal. Mm. I mean, now there are some. I mean, Olivier Giroud, for instance, trying to take the glory from Olivier Giroud for <laughs> suggesting that his even more spectacular scorpion kick goal was in some way lucky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he came out and said, well, you know, it's lucky. And then other people started jumping on the bandwagon. I mean, it's lucky in the same way that every brilliant volley and every overhead kick goal is lucky. Nah. Talk to me. No. I well, mean, you, well, first of all, you think it was better than Mkhitaryan's goal? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Oh, no. Absolutely not. No way. I mean, okay, it was onside. It was a, it was a legal goal. <laughs> it was goals scored according to the rules of the game. I can't take that away from it. But it was nowhere near as good. In terms of the difficulty of of doing it, I mean, it was a hopeful sort of. That's what he meant when he said it was lucky. He just flicked it towards the goal, and was quite lucky that it. I mean, Mkhitaryan actually powered it in with a volley. I mean, it was there was much more pace on the ball. That's why that's why I think it was a. That's why I think Mkhitaryan's one was much more difficult. Mm. Uh, the sort of angle that he was at. I mean, Giroud. People are calling it a scorpion kick. As though a scorpion had two tails, you know? A scorpion only has one tail. 
when Rennie Aguida did it, the point the point about it is that he actually physically looked a little bit like a scorpion. His two little arms out in front of him like the claws and his stinging tail in the form of his legs, which are actually joined together, mm. um, uh, you know, kicking the ball away, uh, which was which was pretty incredible. I mean, when I think of Mkhitaryan's goal, I think, I can't remember if his legs, his legs seemed to be closer together. He was certainly off the ground. Giroud was standing on his right leg as he flicked the ball with his left leg. Um, you know, got a decent contact on it and scored a nice goal. But, I mean, was it even, was it really that good? Oh, Ken. Uh, well, uh, talk to Arsene Wenger. He believes it to be one of the top five goals scored in his time uh, with Arsenal. I, I'm telling you, fam. I would not agree. I would not agree. Uh, I, I think it's. I think it was a good goal. Don't get me wrong. It was good. So but it wasn't. What, what, it wasn't a scorpion kick. But what part of it would, didn't impress you? I mean, is it the luck element of it? Well, I've always said Giroud is good in that near post area with his left foot. Mm. And this was just another uh, <laughs> another one to put typical, in the catalogue. Typical Giroud, you know, you can rely on him to score that chance nine times out of ten. Uh, other chances, lower, lower yeah. numbers out of ten. I just I find it interesting this this idea that it's lucky, you know. That, oh, well, I mean, because he didn't mean to put it in that exact position in the goal, as if he didn't, you know, open his body up Thierry Henry style and you know place it very delicately into the exact part of the goal that he was aiming for. Well, you can tell the difference between. A goal, a, a shot that's very deliberately aimed, or has clearly gone exactly where, mm. where the striker but think wanted of, it to think go. Think of every overhead kick that you've ever seen. I mean, would you not say that overhead kick goals are absolutely brilliant and show a level of, I want to say, flexibility, even though that doesn't seem like a very footballer kind of word. Physical flexibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they like a control over one's physical movements that is impressive. It is. Yeah. Although, I mean, could you not do what you really did? I could There's certainly do what Giroud did. There yeah, was I, no lift-off. We're not talking about, you know, a Marco van Basten type, you know, these famous sort of overhead, you know, even Mark Hughes, the kind of goals that mm. he would score. It was literally a man standing on one leg, flicking a ball that, I mean, it's 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 not that difficult to do. Have you, have you, well, you I mean, telling me you've never done that move? I mean, I'm, I'm, I will be pretty confident that you have never in your life executed a perfect bicycle kick with a really meaty contact on a ball. You are correct. In the style of, you know, the Rooney goal against Man City a few years ago. I'm sure that's not, but I'm sure that you have at some point done what Giroud did yesterday in terms of, oh, the ball is slightly behind me, I'll flick that one. I just need to sort of, you know, bring mm. my foot sort of over the top here in this chopping motion. But it went in off the crossbar, Ken. It, yeah, it looped in off the crossbar. Still. The, the crossbar... I saw, I think Barney Rone had something about like the Yeboa premium, so adds a, adding an extra 20% mm. to, the, to the beauty of a goal when the ball goes in off the bar. But I don't think it applies when the ball only loops off the crossbar. It has to smack the crossbar, bounce down, and bounce up into the roof, preferably into the roof of the net. Mm. But either way, it has to crack off the crossbar with a, you know, with a, a sound that... Okay, so if there's a 20% premium for smacking off the crossbar, there's still... A seven and a half percent premium for surely looping in off the bo- underside of the crossbar. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think we've gone quite deep into the what makes a great I, goal. I great thought goal, I thought it was a, a very fine goal, but I wouldn't have thought that it was. Uh, okay, you're fi- you're finished reporting on aesthetics. Let's report on some sport then, shall we? Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, Mkhitaryan's goal was much better. I suppose it's a sign, though. Of, I mean, I, I don't know if the, the, if if the two events are connected. I mean, I wouldn't connect it because I don't see them as being the same thing. I think Mkhitaryan, Mkhitaryan's goal was much more difficult. Um, uh, whereas the Giroud one is more is a more conventional type of skill that I think, <clears throat> you know, I don't even I don't really see them as the same thing. But you know, they are both being given the same name, um, and whether it has some whether. Mkhitaryan having done that opened Giroud's eyes in some way mm. opened the eyes of his mind it's like the first uh, cricketer to use the use the, the the boundary behind him as a potential for scoring really yeah it was an Indian gentleman who uh, spent some time in County Galway actually I'm going really? to find that man's name now and nobody had thought of doing this before no he was and he, afterwards they were like why don't we yeah there's a whole another world here that we're not even exploring um, the four minute mile was uh, broken once and then many, many times, once people knew it could be done, and also once everybody had the right, uh, you know, nutrition and um, running shoes and track surfaces and all that kind of thing. Prince Ranji lived in uh, Bal- Balnahinch. Prince Ranjit Singhji lived in uh, Balnahinch Castle in uh, County Gola. Was he on a student exchange? Why did he go there? No, no, he was a prince. So, I mean, oh, where, do, where do princes live, you know? I suppose... Um, but I, you know, okay. So maybe the players are spurring each other on. I, I get the feeling, actually, looking at the league at the moment, that a lot of the the, the standards are high at the moment. The, the big teams are are mostly playing quite well, mostly playing quite well, and um, you know they're they're obviously <clears throat> all kind of foundering in Chelsea's wake at the moment. Uh, we are going to talk to Jack Pitbrook a bit later on uh, about that big game tomorrow between Tottenham and Chelsea. Uh, which is huge now for the for the title race. I mean, if if there is to be one, Chelsea have to be stopped. They have to be stopped before they get to fourteen. You know, a record within a season, fourteen wins in a row. It's, it's good that the it's already a record within a season. I should say thirteen yeah. is is already a record. Uh, it's good that the league as a whole have sent forward their best man to try and take Chelsea down. Uh, uh, Spurs, whose intimidating record against Chelsea. <laughs> Puts them in their prime position. There. Well, they have. They've they've got a. I mean, they they did. They have had a couple of good wins against Chelsea in the last couple of years, um, not in the last couple of games, admittedly. Um, but they've surely got to, you know, re- be really up for that game. I mean, after what happened to them last season. But we will talk to Jack a bit about that. Um, there was a big uh, a match of almost. Well, I say equal significance I mean it's not really because neither of these teams are in Chelsea's position but Liverpool against Manchester City on Saturday was an interesting game very un-Liverpool like win um, where, which which involved a lot of uh, um, well again a great goal I mean to be honest was Giroud's goal better than Wijnaldum's goal? Oh yeah You think? Well certainly Less common. <laughs> you you have me coming around here slightly, Ken. But I mean, I don't it, think you see too many too many goals like Vinaldum's either. To be honest, I mean, I wish well, you do. I wish just you did like, just from like two yards closer to the goal. That's I mean, true. It's a, it's a little further out. I mean, the, that's the that's soaring the point of difference here. The soaring at the penalty spot to bullet the ball into the into the bottom corner is always a nice kind of look. I mean, I'm Niall Quinn against uh, Newcastle. Um, you can't think of too many. I suppose you is probably still a little bit rare, a little bit rare. But you know, um, what did we see uh, out of this game? What we saw is there was a lot of against Roma for United. Oh yeah, that Ronaldo was a very Roma. good header. He has scored quite a few mm. of those, to be fair. But the um, 
the thing that was notable about this game was was the spoiling from Liverpool, the um, really aggressive uh, ball shielding in the corners, which started well before the 90-minute mark. And for a team that is as porous as Liverpool have been, I mean, as, as prone to concede goals out of nothing, um, you know, it was, on the one hand, you know, it's like, why have they started doing this so early? This is a little bit too negative. They will be punished for this. On the other hand, this is exactly the type of defensive, um, you know, cynicism, I suppose, that you're going to need at times, and which then completely deserted them as they twice threw away a leading position against um, Sunderland yesterday. Um, now, I don't know whether to talk about Guardiola or Klopp first. Um, Guardiola then went on... Uh, Manchester City played Burnley yesterday. Fernandinho sent off again. Fernandinho has been sent off three times in his last six matches. So he sent off against uh, Gladbach. Um This red card was for a shirt pull, second yellow. Then he sent off against Chelsea for fighting. And then he was sent off against Burnley for, you know, a heavy foul. And <laughs> the the net result of this, okay, Manchester City won, and I'm sure everyone, most people listening to this will have seen already at least one of the interviews with Pep Guardiola, because there's more than one, in which he, well, reveals a certain amount of irritation with how, uh, with how things are going. Um, the, in the case of the BBC interview... Uh, I think a lot of it, a lot of the awkwardness in that one revolved around a misunderstanding where Guardiola was complaining about a foul against Bravo, but using the word fault. Whether he was trying to say fouled or whether he just refers to a foul as a fault, which is also possible, I'm not sure, but the BBC interviewer didn't seem to pick that up and was saying, you mean it was Bravo's fault? Which I think just got Pep even a bit more angry. Uh, No, that's not what I was saying. I mean that he was sort of Nat Lofthoused into the into the goal by Burnley. Um, he he goes into the press conference and is and you know is obviously unhappy. Um, Fernandinho, does he have a does he have a problem? Maybe a slight problem in the brain area. What with the, what with all these red cards? Uh, Ask the referee, not me. We try to play football. My team's always in my career. Try to play football. I can't control other circumstances. Um, why it's it's always our fault. It's always City's fault. I saw other games all around the world. The Burnley goal will be a foul on Claudio Bravo. All around the world, the rules say the goalkeeper in six-yard box cannot be touched. Do they? I'm sure about that. I saw it happen to Stecklenburg in the Everton Middlesbrough game at the beginning of the season. It was the same. It was a goal. Okay, I have to adapt and understand there are special rules in England. Now I have learned we are going to play. Now he says he's learned, but I'm not sure that there uh, that this is the last we're going to hear on this team. I think we might be hearing a bit more of this as as the season goes on. Because, obviously, when you've got Claudio Bravo, every team is going to try and do exactly what they did. It's just uh, whether or not that that reputation is fair, that is his reputation. And that is what he's going to have to deal with. Uh, And referees, I think, who are told to, who are instructed by a manager to look out for fouls in a particular area, are almost less likely to give those fouls. Mm. Because it looks like they've just been told how to ref a game by a manager. Yeah, yeah, and they do, they don't like that. I mean, there there are ways referees can be influenced, but telling them what to do is not the way. You know, it's more about it's more about implanting in them a fear of the consequences about what will go wrong or what will happen to them if they get it wrong mm. against you. If they telling them how you. to be a better referee 
doesn't really have the same sort of power over them as I will crush you. I will crush your refereeing career. Yeah, I mean, it may be it may be a more civilized way to conduct the debate. You know, for a manager to make a technical point, like, look, it's a fa- it's supposed to be a foul when your goalkeeper gets pushed around in the six yard box, which you know, which again is is that in the, the laws of the game? It's a while since I've read them. I can't remember the rule about that. It is the culture. It's the culture, I suppose, in other countries that you can't really do that. Um, to a goalkeeper, but it's clearly not in the Premier League. It is more civilized to do that to sort of say, "Well, look, you know, I think those situations should be fouls," rather than to, you know, use the media, for instance, to, to conduct a, a hate campaign against a particular referee. But is it as effective? <sighs> well, Pep isn't seeing any results yet. They keep getting red cards. You know, I mean, they've, they've had more red cards than I think. Is it seven red cards? It's more than anybody else. Anyway, it's a, it's a crazy number, uh, and now they lose Fernandinho for. Uh, for four matches, uh, Sean Dyche actually said that uh, they should have had a second sending off uh, against Bracari Sanya yesterday. But you also saw a little bit of uh, Guardiola learning from the environment uh, when he um, when he uh, came out for the second half and then started to do the Jurgen Klopp mm. of trying to wind up the crowd. Did you see this? Yeah. Have you heard about this? <laughs> I have, Ken. Uh, yeah, and again, it's like, you know, it's it's. I think maybe a lot of it depends on the facial expression that you have it while does. you're doing it. Yeah. So if Jurgen Klopp comes out and he's upbeat and asking the crowd to be upbeat, then that's fine. But if Pep Guardiola comes out and looks extremely pissed off yeah. and asks them for noise, then I think it has a very different impact. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of, it, there was something sort of that didn't quite, it didn't quite work. When Klopp does it, he, you know, he 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 often is, has got his face is contorted in a mask of rage at the crowd. He's screaming at them. Argh. Whereas with Pep, it was kind of more oh, like, "Come on, you know what's wrong with you? You know, come on." It, it, there was something just a little bit more. Mm. He's. It's just not really his um, field. This sort of, you know, mass uh, cult leader communication. He, he's he's not that good in that in that situation. But look, you know, they did get the win, which obviously he was extremely happy about. Uh, and we will talk to Miguel Delaney uh, a little bit about him uh, and also what happened with Manchester United. But we, we were talking about Klopp there. Klopp was, uh, Klopp did a press conference after his game at Sunderland, which was also pretty, he, it, he, he managed to avoid it really in the TV interviews. But if you look at the press conference with the journalists, he gets pretty ratty with them. Um, there's lots of sarcasm. You know, there's lots of, you know, the angry manager who starts calling the question stupid. Mm. Oh, yeah, obviously. Duh, like, you know, this this type of stuff. Yeah, which There's probably a course that Premier League managers could take now on, you know, just fulfilling your duties. I mean, I, 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 did, I know that this is unfair because yeah. they do so many of these and many of them pass off without incident. But it just kind of seems like none of them ever helped themselves by coming out and being, uh, you know, smart yeah. in these... You know, or short in these uh, interviews. Well, in, Klo- in Klopp's case, no, sar- sarcasm is is almost always bad. You know, you, it almost it maybe it feels good in the instant, but mm. it always looks bad. You know, for if you know you're you're releasing a little bit of emotion that you know you, it's you just want to fling this poisonous emotion into the face of the other person like acid. You know, <laughs> um, but of course, you know, why do you feel good doing it? Yeah, at the end, you're still the guy who's just thrown acid in someone's face. What are the other people in the room going to think? 
know? <laughs> it's, it's kind of... I mean, Klopp's argument, such as it was with the journalists, was he was basically saying, oh, it feels so bad to have conceded two penalties. And they were like, oh, so the penalty decisions were wrong. And he's saying, no. I mean, I didn't say that. It just feels bad to have conceded two penalties. I mean, okay, the decision for the free kick leading up to the second penalty was clearly wrong. But, you know, the, okay, it's a handball. It's a handball. You know, I, I'm not, he, he's kind of saying, I'm not um, trying to attack the referee. But you kind of are as well. If you're complaining about penalties, you sort of are mm. suggesting that the referee, you know. Has had an undue influence yeah, on. You are, you are kind of saying that. So he was sort of trying to have it both ways. I think it might be better off for him to just make a rule. And it's not going to it's not going to be relevant for the next little while anyway because Sadio Mane is going to play for Senegal for the next few weeks. But he should make a rule with Sadio Mane that he's not allowed to go into Liverpool's box. He should just say, "Look, you are a very important player. This is an exclusion zone." Literally, it's an exclusion zone because you are, a, you know, a valuable player. We're all delighted with what you've done for us. But you do, you are one of the dirtiest players in the world and you commit fouls almost at random. Now this, okay, wasn't wasn't strictly a foul. I mean, it was a handball rather than a... But it was know, a very a stupid handball. It I mean, was, there's no... Yeah. Come on, it was a reflex. It was a reflex, Klopp said. But, you know, it was a costly, costly random reflex of the type that's not going to help you win too many league titles. I think Mane really should be just told, stay out of here. You know, we can the re, the other ten of us will try and um, we'll try and do this and maybe look for the look for a ball on the counter attack. There's just no point in having him in the box because I think you you kind of risk um, those situations. But this um, was a good day for uh, David Moyes, though, Ken. Well, uh, bloody bloody right it was, and if it, rather needed as well after what had happened on, you know, the what was it, the two days, forty eight hours beforehand. Yeah, losing four one to Burnley. I mean that's not great. No, um, but you know, the, and the, this this was obviously a tough game. But it's you know it was good to have the, if if you have a um, if you have a uh, you know really bad defeat like that. Maybe I mean the really bad defeats. If you look throughout the league, the history of the season, they can kind of help a team to an extent. I mean Manchester United have been playing really well since they got destroyed by Chelsea. Chelsea have been playing really well since they were destroyed by Arsenal. Um, just something that kind of focuses the mind a little bit. Sunderland are obviously different. You know, Sunderland don't have a squad full mm. of some of the most expensive players in the world. But you can drift for a lot of 1-0 defeats. I, I can kind of see the point you're making here compared to... Whereas a four, you're like, oh God, we need to... Um, but as as Moyes said, I mean, Klopp had made, had made some, you know, uh, uh, not very... I mean, he, when Liverpool beat Sunderland, it was—it's where it was. These fixtures were just before Christmas. You know, we kind of that. They, there's always that quirk in the season whereby you play a team in quick succession, um, uh, and they beat Sunderland quite recently, but very narrowly, um, with a, a Rigi goal kind of out of nothing. And Klopp said, "Oh, they're the most defensive team I ever saw. Then the most defensive team I ever saw," which might have seemed just like, "Oh, there's there's Kloppo." Uh, just a bit of, you know, his his maybe his euphoria there at this late victory has bubbled over, and he said something inadvertent, something a little clumsy, but how that must have stung, David Moyes. What has David Moyes ever done in the game other than work hard and try to get his rewards?
Mm. What has he ever done in the game other than work hard and honestly? I know, Ken, I know. You know, uh, so uh, so when you say the most defensive team I ever saw, that hurts. Well, I mean, it's not saying he's the, w- the worst team he's ever saw. It still hurts. Especially for a coach who, when he managed uh, Manchester United, was regarded as as being too defensive, as not really having... 91 the- crosses in one game, or whatever <laughs> the hell it was. Nothing defensive about that, Ken. Well... Moyes, anyway. Look, and, but who? But but did you read any? Did you read any any articles after that saying was Jurgen Klopp unnecessarily? Did he tread? No. Should he have tread a little more softly? For he was treading on the dreams of David Moyes when he described his Sunderland team as the most defensive team I ever saw. Sunderland team, who by the way are going to Anfield, where a lot of teams have got ripped up. You know, conceded four or five goals this season and came very close to getting a point, which. You know, yeah, isn't I'm that sorry, isn't I'm, that good? I'm failing to see the the grievous insult here. Well, David Moyes. Well, look, you know, it's it's a bit like you know when you when you in one sense David Moyes is an open book, but on the other hand, you know there are hidden depths as well. You sometimes you, it's not as though people were saying, "Oh, poor David Moyes, this was too much from Jurgen Klopp." You have to, but if you look at what David Moyes said, I think there are signs that he might have been a little bit annoyed by that. It's a bit like I was. <laughs> I was listening to uh, an interview recently with Gary Kasparov. I don't know how much, hmm. uh, you know, if $60,000 had to change hands. And the chair. I think, no, he's promoting it. He's promoting a book now called Winter is Coming. So he's talking about... Uh, sounds cheery. Russia. Yeah, it's, 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 it's about, you know, um, the uh, Russia, Putin, uh, you know, hmm. just to do the thing we the were talking point, about, Putin. Yeah. And... Um, he said that, uh, in his opinion, it was it was a grievous miscalculation by Barack Obama to describe Russia as a regional power. He mentioned in some speech, he, he said, you know, in a casual way, regional powers like Russia. And he said, oh, you know, you can't do that. Like, I mean, that's that would have been, that would not have not gone down well. And he said, I then saw, uh, after this whole hacking thing came out, I saw the Russian uh, foreign minister, I think it was Sergei Lavrov, say in an interview on one of the American news stations, um, you know, he's asked, what do you think of this? You know, you have subverted our democracy. And Lavrov said, well, of course, it's very flattering for uh, regional power to be uh, accused of, of wielding such influence. You know, for, for, for a humble regional power, it's, uh, you know, really is quite something to, to think that we're, you know, the puppet masters controlling everything that happens in your country. So... When Moyes says, I feel we weren't too defensive today and got something out of the game, um, we were always mindful of getting something from the game, and we did. I feel as though there might have been a, a little bit of a reference to that. And when Moyes says, maybe if I was a German manager, you'd have praised that. Maybe if I was German, you'd be saying, this is great, you're doing something different. I feel as though there's a slight... There's, you know, I'm, I'm reading. There, yeah. I am reading between the lines here, but I feel as though there's a teeny, a little bit of resentment there. There which, are unsaid words there. Moyes is a man who knows how to swallow bitter pills, right? He's swallowed a lot of them, and he knows usually how to how to take it and how to internalize the resentment. And it, you know, it's eventually it diffuses into the body. You know, who knows where it goes? But on this occasion, he decided to let a little bit, a little bit of it out. Mm. You know, let a little bit of it. Go. Can I uh, can I read you a tweet? Oh yeah, please. It was a very bad day for. Oh, sorry. No, one second. I'm going to read you the actual tweet now. Best league in the world, but refereeing standards don't match up. Sort your men out. Hashtag Mike Riley. 
What football man was responsible for that, Ken? Alan Bloody Shearer. Alan Shearer says, sort your, sort your sort men your out. Sort your men out. Hashtag uh, Mike Riley. Hashtag Mike Riley. Well, mate, who knows if... Is, is, is Mike Riley on Twitter? Can he fire back? Well, I, I'm sure that Alan Shearer would have used the at Mike Riley ref. Um, or at ref <laughs> at real Mike Riley yeah at real ref Mike Riley <laughs> uh, if he'd used it but no he just used a hashtag uh, it was a very bad day for referees though okay. um, was it any worse I can remember lots of bad ones they always they always blend into each other you know some days it goes your way some days some, some days, days you're doesn't. the statue Ken sometimes you're some days you're the pigeon yeah uh, I mean that's 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 reasonable uh, to me, Defoe incidentally, Defoe is now only the fourth player to score ten or more Premier League goals up to set in ten different seasons. Who are the other three players? Can't believe you're doing this to me. Alan Shearer, yes. Andy Cole, no. Ooh, uh, Robbie Fowler, no. no. No, no. What am I doing? What am I doing? No, okay. Exactly the wrong Can't type just, of answer. Let's just pull back. Frank Lampard, yes. Um, you got Alan Shearer. You got, got Jermaine Defoe. Uh, shouldn't be that difficult. Not Thierry Henry. He didn't play ten years in the Premier League, did he? No. No. Um, oh, it's quite an easy question, actually. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's someone who's still playing. Someone who's still playing. Oh no! Okay, no. No, no, no. It's someone who's who's still playing at one of the one of the Premier League's big clubs. Okay. Let's just let's just take a moment here. Chelsea recently yeah. equalised a kind of a goal-scoring record at one of those clubs. Did he equalise? Wayne him? Rooney. Wayne Rooney is the answer. Okay. Wayne Rooney has managed to score, has managed this feat of Jermaine Defoe's as well. Mm-hmm. Although not this season, not yet. Uh, maybe he'll he'll crack it. But where are we? Uh, what else? So so speaking of of Rooney, his team was in action at West Ham. They won two nil. Uh, a couple of favouring favourable refereeing decisions. We'll talk to Miguel about that. Um, in terms of the actual decision of the red card against uh, Faguli, um yeah, I mean, uh, in one sense, Faguli is kind of not really in control of his movement. In another very similar sense, neither is Phil Jones, who's doing very much the same thing. I mean, this is not the, this is this was clearly though not the type of incident that this rule about you know two-footed tackling or anything that looks like a two-footed tackle is designed to discourage i think for was actually kind of still was hoping he was in control of the ball almost you know he'd mm. taken a heavy touch he was chasing after it and i thought he was going for the ball and not really with not not with excessive force at all there wasn't even this the speed the force in his in his body movement to you know to that cause Phil a, Jones had. No, that well, that Phil Jones had. Although Phil Jones, you know, is you could say that's a hard but fair challenge. You know, mm. Phil Jones comes in, takes the ball, and wipes out the man. You know, with his trailing body. You know, <laughs> he left his body there he just left, to hurt your man. Um, left his body in a little. You know. Uh, yeah, I mean, the body was the body was there. Newton's laws of motion, what have you, equals pain for for Gooley. Although Jones seemed to be in more pain uh, afterwards. Um, anyway, go. It's it's go. If, if you talk about decisions, we're the champions of bad decisions," said uh, said Jose Mourinho. Uh, I did kind of think that there was something in his rather apologetic sideline demeanor to, towards Slavin Bilic that suggested maybe this was the day that Jose Mourinho would come out and say after the game, "Yeah, probably 
that wasn't a great decision. But listen, we did enough over the 90 minutes. I mean, I don't know how hard it is to actually say these things that are just nothing. You know, that are, that are answers to questions that will just be instantly, that are being forgotten even as people are listening to them. Yeah, no, there was no, ch- there was no chance of that. I mean, this, he, Bilic and, and Marino are, are kind of evidently friendly-ish as, mm, so far as... It did as, kind of look that way. Uh, I mean, pre- the previous one was obviously against Aitor Karanka, the Middlesbrough manager, who was Mourinho's assistant for a long time. And that was that was real uh, Spartacus Antoninus type stuff, you know? Uh, I'm sad because my brother... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he, he did have this comment about... Um, this is his tip for the African uh, Nations Cup. Eric Bailly has joined up with the Ivory Coast squad. Mourinho said, Bailly's leaving. He goes to the national team. He has to be with them on 2nd of January. We asked for him to be on 3rd January, uh, but they refused. So he kind of played against West Ham. This was before the game. With these kinds of decisions, they are controlling every second. So for sure, they are going to win the African Cup, says uh, says Jose Mourinho. So uh, that's uh, that's his world. Okay, well, we've got uh, Miguel Delaney waiting to talk to us about uh, that game, United West Ham. Uh, so that's the end of your report on sport, Ken. What, you, what are you saying? <laughs> You're just a phony, man. This is just what I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. This is just an act that you don't. You should be an actor. But, brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. <laughs> I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you're a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. I don't play this, man. You can't teach that. Miguel Delaney's on the line. Miguel, you were at the Olympic Stadium to see West Ham lose to Manchester United. It's a game that a lot of people were complaining was spoiled by the referee, but I have to say, I find it quite entertaining. Um, yeah, well, I suppose I think maybe more the second half, it kind of because there was actually some football and more chances played. Um, because I did think the red card was a, it had a bit of a strange effect in the sense that West Ham did, did begin the game well, but once it happened, it almost seemed United kind of were a bit reticent and sat back. And Mourinho afterwards put that down to uh, the effect of having of playing two, two, or, you know, two games in three days, saying his players were tired. Were tired. And we're kind of ju- we're slow mentally, but but yeah, um, it, it did pick up second half. Um, and even even Mourinho admitted himself that had Mikel Antonio scored that got, uh, had that chance just before uh, Mata's goal, it could have been very different. Mm. Um, the red card. It was maybe one of those cases where the red card sort of focused the mind of the team that had lost the player. Um, but the interesting thing about this really was the, the whole reaction to Mike Dean. It's it's been quite remarkable. Um, his breakout performance almost it's 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 turned him from you know a, a cult character actor into the the main event well look i mean I, I just if you if you're you know feeling the same thing as me without i haven't said anything to you previously or off air or anything like that but what is the problem what is the thing that everyone says is the problem with mike dean miguel I would say his arrogance and facial expressions more so. Oh, okay. I was going to say he wants to be the center of attention. That's the <laughs> that's the problem with Mike. I mean, I've heard so many people say it. It's like he wants to be the star of the show. Yeah, um, but I think that that's part of it. It's because he he, he doesn't just he, he doesn't just you know give us give us decision. Everything he does has to have that extra flourish. 
that extra it, it, it is almost like he's a performer on stage I, I, like in a in a play rather than a film or that in a of, in a 1920s silent movie slapstick comedy yeah exa- exactly exactly so one, one of those actors who kind of spits as he speaks just to to more fully enunciate you know it, 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 he, he really it's real, real peacocking you have to call it yeah um seven village was was pretty pissed off afterwards well, but in his press conference afterwards, actually, he was quite um, he 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 was strangely considered or considered for the whole thing. Like he he was pretending as if he wasn't too bothered, and even he he was he was asked uh, about you know wh- you know whether he wants to bring video technology, and he said, "Look, uh, re- referees ha- they just have a difficult job." I don't say it was deliberate, um, and but then, and he said these things don't even out. And very strange, he said. He 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 wouldn't want video technology in situations like that because he likes the discussion down the pub. Now, I suppose the discussion down the pub centered on Mike Dean in this case. Mm. Um, but I, I mean, mean, he see he seemed irritated by it without really kind of you know he he didn't go he didn't go Mourinho or Guardiola anyway. Anyway, yeah, I mean Dean himself. Though, I mean the 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 point about it is that. Mike Dean only sent off Fagouli because he was he had been criticised by everyone for not sending off Ross Barkley a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you couldn't see a more obvious case of uh, the referee sort of overcompensating for previous criticism. What I mean here is that the problem, in a way, is people's insistence on talking about Mike Dean all the time. Yeah, that's probably true. Although I wonder as well how much um, Phil Jones' reaction fed into it as well. Because, I mean, to be honest, even... Like we, we in the stadium at the time before we saw the replays. I mean, we are about four kilometers back, yeah. given given the view at the uh, the Olympic Stadium, how far away it is from the pitch. But in first instance, because from the way Phil Jones uh, went down, I thought it, I thought it was a disgraceful challenge. Well, that's definitely red. At, at that at that very second, I didn't have a qualm myself. But then once we saw the replays, I go, oh, that that, and, and obviously we weren't as close to it as Mike Dean. But yeah, it, it, it did seem someone di- dictated, I suppose, yeah, by, by, by that, the, that reaction. And as you say, the fact that he himself has become such a, such a topic of conversation. But, but it is, the interesting thing about Dean is the way this has just gradually, gradually crept up. I mean, you know, for, for so long, you know, on Twitter and the like, we'd seen it in the background, all, all the kind of, you know, the, the memes and vimes, vines of, uh, of, of Dean and some of his flourishes. But it's but it's the way this has just grown into something much more concrete now that he ha- he has become such a central topic of discussion and 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 this because suppose it wasn't just that he uh, he had the red card it was like he compounded it with later decisions even you know, the the offside w- w- wasn't his fault um, it was more the fault of uh, to uh, to borrow Tim Stillman's uh, quote on Twitter of uh, one of the Dnets <laughs> but it, I mean this is terrible because it makes it I mean okay every, everyone. Everyone has been on the receiving end of Mike Dean at some point. Um, everyone knows knows how it feels, but it makes it very difficult for him to do his job. And it's not and it's not as though there's anything really particular about him. I mean, maybe people have latched on to him maybe because mm. his his name is easy to remember and his face too, uh, and the way that he you know holds it off the red card. But the the problem is that when you get this kind of feeding frenzy around a referee, it's difficult for him to do his job uh, properly and. It's it sets a a dangerous pattern which can be repeated with any official. Yeah, um, I, I, in, in in a sense that it, it ensures now there's almost there's a potential of an element of prejudice for every single decision because as, as you say, if 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 he is that scrutinised and is under that public view, then 
it, it mean, I mean, this was this is the ultimate problem, Mike. It's, it's that, I mean, this was the ideal. Whatever, whatever you ref. Where every refereeing decision is almost like in a, in a court of law. There should be there should be no previous with it. That he has to take every decision on its own on its own terms, unless he specifically warned the player about a repeated type of foul or something like that. Mm. But now, because of the way he's being viewed and because of the way he's being discussed, every decision is part of a part of a, a wider tapestry beyond that. I mean, there was maybe a little bit of it with with Howard Webb and around the time of the 2010 World Cup final. Mm. But he's obviously a very different sort of character, and you know, much you, you, you would you would say. Um, more of a plausible authority figure. <laughs> yeah, that's about to put it like that. Yes. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned Jones' reaction, though. Uh, do you would you credit Jose Mario dos Santos Felix Mourinho with helping Jones to understand how uh, a player <laughs> reacts in that situation? I mean, I wonder. Do you know, I mean, I saw. Uh, I also saw a good bit of the Manchester United Middlesbrough game two days before. And there was a moment in that game when Rashford came on. Well, Rashford was on. He was running down the left, ran into the box, was fouled, hesitated for a split second, then fell over. And I thought Mourinho is not going to like that. This is, it, but it, it, it was like Rashford. It, he, it clearly wasn't his natural instinct to fall over at this sort of minor, you know, foul, like a, yeah. a minor touch in the box. But then he realized, oh, I should have gone down there and went down. And what it hadn't become natural yet. I wonder if. This is so, you know, if if the the side is beginning to absorb sort of those types of characteristics. Um, <laughs> we're gonna get slightly dangerous territory. I mean, you know, I suppose you can go you go back to uh, to Mourinho's very very first landmark game against Celtic in two thousand and three, and some of the complaints said then, and that was a team that had fully bought into bought into bought into his ideas of, um, you know. <laughs> But it's but about helping extreme extreme pragmatism. It's about helping the referee. You know, it's it's about it's about helping the referee to see what's happened. I mean, sometimes it's like you, you mentioned, you know, an actor on stage. You know, an actor on stage has to over enunciate. You know, has what? to has to project, has to exaggerate in order that people who are positioned maybe forty or fifty feet away, maybe with a slightly obstructed view, can see, can understand what's uh, what's taking place. Well, it was something I was actually thinking about as Bilic was going on his, you know, his very, his very diplomatic speech about about refereeing decisions and and you know, and discussions in, down the pub and video technology and all this. That you, you're probably right in the sense. That, I mean, it's it's the old Ferguson thing as well. You, you don't you don't get decisions going away if you, if you meekly uh, you know think refs deserve a bit of a, a bit of a break and they should be criticised as much. You, you get you get decisions going your way regularly by being as aggressive as anything about them. Yeah. Ferguson was like that, you know. Referees are so intimidated, and even, even beyond play, you know, players doing things like that with Mourinho. There's also the way he talks about decisions afterwards, the way he plays up this idea of um, you know, of, 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 he plays up every single decision going against him, but uh, the decision, you know, overlooks those that go. For, I mean, even yesterday. He he was asked about the, the two massive decisions that went away. And he said, "When when we play at home, I have all the tools after the game to see the decision, decisions immediately, so I can immediately talk about them. When we play away, I don't have those tools, so I can't comment." Right. <laughs> he doesn't have an iPad when he goes. He can't get the Wi-Fi code like off West. I mean, he he was asked about decision. And he said, "Which decisions? My decisions to play Mata at halftime and Rashford later." Thank you very much. So that's yeah. Mourinho just taking the piss. Out of, uh, out of the interviewer, obviously, but uh, you know how much credit do you give him? I mean, the the team has won six in a row now, and it was uh, you know substitutes, but Ramada and Rashford combining 
making the difference last night. Uh, do you see this as, as evidence of uh, of a master plan that's finally coming together? Um, I, I think, I mean, given some of the debate about Mourinho just two months ago, you got you, you do have to give him a fair bit of credit for turning around. There's still, I mean, there's still issues at United, even in this run. Do they you, though? Do you really? I mean, they've got the most expensive squad in the world. They're finally, they finally managed to win some games. You know, if you look yes. at the list of opponents they've beaten, there's Tottenham's on there. Um, you know, it's not, it hasn't exactly been... Well, uh, I was about to, I mean, yeah, there's only one game in this run that's been really, you think, right. United, in any circumstances, they might have been difficult here. And any even still, that's Tottenham at home. You know, lads at Tottenham, etc. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, given the debate about... The specific debate about Mourinho was, first of all, it was whether... A, his his entire method of management was up to the modern game, whether it, and it, it, specifically in relation to attacking, and that was compounded by this whole idea that his teams didn't even have the, the resilience that is great. To, or sorry, his modern management didn't, you know, um, foster the resilience that was in his old teams. But I think we United over the past six games we have seen elements of both. I mean, first of all, they started to finally properly defend and ha- and have this kind of hard bitten aggression about them in the way. The, you know the best Mourinho side. Not, not that they're anywhere close to that yet, but um, you know they've they've stopped conceding stupid goals, particularly late in games. On the other side of it, then they're getting wins now in the way they didn't. They have developed that kind of that rhythm in in terms of even if not playing great, which they weren't. I mean, it was probably their, I think out of the ball six games, yes, it was probably their worst display um, in all of them. But they, but they still did enough. And and, did, and to be fair, it does seem a bit of you know. A bit of a spark to that attack now that more of the players are doing, particularly, particularly now, now that Mourinho has has put has put in the expensive summer signing Henry Mkhitaryan, <laughs> who he left out bewilderingly as they drew, or I think they won two matches in the previous eleven in the league. You know that's why Mourinho was getting criticised. Well, puts- yeah, I, I, and Pogba has his role. To be fair, as Latan stepped up, but I think like this is, I mean, hearing people from his time at Chelsea, even one of the things that Mourinho then, I suppose. People always said that the, the attacking idea was actually quite basic in contrast to other modern managers. But the whole thing was once enough players bought into a system and, and once they were on form, they would be able to play. I think that's what what, what we're seeing now. Um, now, yeah. I, I, I suppose you might say it's it's it's, it's quite easy. Man. The idea is just okay, get, me, get me in the most expensive players because they tend to be some of the best players. Mm. Um, but to be fair, at the moment, there's, there's a decent framework where it's coming off. And I think... I mean, for all the talk about his, his attacking ideas and all that, there, there was something in, inspired him. Said that it, it was quite positive for United the way he reacted to, um, to circumstances. Um, as he put it at half after the game at halftime, he had a or sorry after an hour once he bought him Marcus Rashford, he had an extra body in the creation area. But um, you know, <laughs> M- 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 Mata and Rashford were finally giving United a bit of width. Whereas earlier in the game, you know, everything was going through the centre. It was quite sluggish. And and that's where they got the goals from. And and to be fair to him, for for, for all for, for all the criticism about his attacking style in his career, even you know, even at his peak Chelsea when they were kind of they would always win games one one nil two nil and just and just almost declare and see it out. Then he has always been very very good. And when a game isn't quite going his way, making that little change that um the that just opens the game up. And one reaction or one game that comes to mind was even Paris Saint Germain in his first season back at Chelsea when they beat him in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Uh, and this, you know, finally was. Hang on, I thought Par- was, didn't Paris Saint Germain? Oh no, Paris Saint Germain knocked them out. So sort of, they played each other a couple of times. Yeah, they played twice in two years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. The, the first one, I think they were down to ten men in that game as well. But, but but he adjusted and they um 
and, and they got through. And there was an element of this as well. I think that's what's encouraging for United. That because, because, you know, it, it isn't too long ago where we were talking about the, the, the situation where almost nothing Mourinho was trying was coming off and it was a continuation of Chelsea. But you have to say that that stopped. You know, beyond all that, I suppose, what might be dispiriting. I mean, Klopp, Klopp said yesterday about Chelsea's run that imagine how... Um, you know, imagine how frustrated you'd be. You win 13 games and there's still a side within five points of you. It's almost maybe an element of that with United as well. You win six games and you're still just in sixth. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But, you know, the the promising aspect of that situation is the speed at which Manchester City seems to be coming back to them. And one of the other things Mourinho was getting, um, uh, you know, criticised for, for from every angle was his behaviour, his, his attitude, uh, when speaking to the media after almost every match, and he has a tribute act now in Pep Guardiola. Who, I mean, what what did you make of that, Miguel? I mean, I know Pep was getting criticised, and frequently journalists have a tendency to go, "Oh, this is classless," you know, "this isn't very nice," and because they kind of they're, they're to to some extent sort of supporting their colleague who's being disrespected. Everyone's been disrespected like that. Everyone knows the sting of 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 that uh, status gulf. But uh, do you think Pep? Uh, you know, not to put put a fine a point on it, is losing it. Well, I do think it's really, really strange. I mean, what's what's most, I suppose, concerning for Guardiola, I think, is the way it seems that in that, in that manner, the managers just shouldn't. He's allowed this kind of wider debate to influence him because I mean, before before he took over this job and right right since he's been in it, there there obviously has been this. You know, external polemic about you know, oh Guardiola, all of the success was based on you know Messi and and Yesta, and then being a buyer and best team, and there's not that much to it. Um, and so, and this obviously kind of informed so so much of his entry to England and you know, England and and given some, maybe some of the defensiveness of the Premier League, that this this was supposed like there was this this wide range of But to be fair, most of the journalists. Who would um, who would be covering Guardiola? Who would be asking questions at press conference? I think m- most were actually. I mean, you, you, obviously, you talk to people in press rooms, but I think m- most are very open minded a bit towards them. Most of them, most of call, okay, them, call them what they are, Miguel. Call them what they are. Most of them are Ramoners. <laughs> Guardiola supporting Ramoners. But, but, but the, the thing is, though, it's if Guardiola has almost taken it as if anyone who asks any question. Clearly, is on the other side of that debate. I, I thought th- I actually thought that is, is that as well, Miguel. Like there was one of those interviews. I think it was a BBC one where he was saying he keeps he keeps saying, "Oh, I know, I've got to learn a lot," and by which he means yeah. I have to learn nothing. You, I can't believe the primitive football culture that I've walked in on. You guys seriously need to look at yourselves. That's clearly what he actually means by that. I need to learn a lot. I need to understand. I think to myself, there's no need for you to actually set yourself up in this way. There's no need exactly. To- and, and, and even in that, you have to kind of pick your battles as well. I mean, you, when, you, when, it, when everything's a battle, it also means that when he has a genuine point, that they got to get, they kind of get covered because you're just like oh, Guardiola's at it again. He's been, and he he has been kind of unnecessarily cold. And it's, it, it is as if he's kind of, I wouldn't call it a war with the media, but he, he's he's taken the, the, the media as one of his enemies. And I'm, and I'm not sure it is building it up in the, the kind of siege mentality way. And you, you, would, you would talk to the way Ferguson or, or Mourinho has done it in the past. And, and of course, then, the greater problem of all of this is that when you're winning games regularly, you can pretty much say anything. I, was, I think Brendan Rodgers maybe the proof of that in 2013-14 that it didn't no matter it didn't matter what you said, but if, if your team was winning, it could, it could be respawned as some sort of genius. But when your team isn't winning, 
And I mean, when, when, when was the last time you'd say City had a convincing performance? Barcelona at home. Yeah. It's 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 a long time. They just, they look a very patchy patchy team at the moment. So when when that happens, that exacerbates it, makes it even worse. And it seems he is responding to his own team's kind of unconvincing displays with a with a with a greater cattiness. And I, like again, you know, from his time, I I would have been very open minded to him. I think he's one he's one of the great coaches. But it, but it is you are kind of watching him and how cold he is. And he's like for for example. Now again, it, it's easier because Chelsea won so many games. But in terms of a new manager coming into the Premier League, you kind of, you, uh, as someone covering the managers, you'd be more receptive to, to Conte, who does seem a little bit more humbler about it all. Mm-hmm. Well, Conte hasn't enjoyed anything like uh, Guardiola's success, and, and Conte hasn't been a football missionary in the way that mm. Guardiola has been spreading uh, the light to dark places in the world, such as uh, <laughs> Germany and England. Uh, but, you know, when, when you see that sort of, that extreme irritability. I mean, it's unprofessional behavior, basically, to for for someone in Guardiola's position to do that. But I wonder, do you have sympathy? Do you think that these managers? It's not as though Guardiola's the only one. Klopp, yeah, Klopp yesterday gave it gave a, gave a fairly um, irritable press conference. Um, you know, you, you see quite a lot of them acting like uh, you, know, you know in this slightly bratty way or like sulky teenagers. Is that because the environment? Uh, that they have to work in this, you know, this sort of post-match press environment with so many interviews is actually kind of maddening. That it would take a kind of saint or uh, some kind of a Buddhist type of attitude not to lose the head from time to time. But yeah, yeah, you would okay. You would have a certain sympathy from from that. But when you know that's that's going to be the case, when you know the score, develop a bit of a media strategy, you know, and <laughs> just I suppose do a lot of managers do in that situation. You know, put put on a persona if it means being dull. Then for the sake of it, be dull. But but he, it was if he just uh, to be honest. Again, it reminds of Mourinho. Some of us. I mean, one of the things about Mourinho when he when he's all when he when you can tell he's into an issue is that I remember it particularly happened at twenty thirteen fourteen at Chelsea. Say with some of the incidents with, with Wenger and all, and their specialists and failures. So when he'd be asked a question about something, he just couldn't. It was almost in, just in his nature. He couldn't help but answer back. It was as if suddenly. I mean. Later on, it would be kind of spun as you know, Mourinho thinks about everything he does in, in press conferences. But I, I always thought that there, I think all right, that was true eighty percent of the time. But twenty percent of the time, it was as if he just couldn't help himself. He just had to have an answer back. And I think it was like that with the specialist and failure thing. But and I think the, and a bit of that with Guardiola as well is that he just can't help himself. His, his, his nature now is to just. I think it 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 it, it, it does feel as if this wider debate about his game is. Um, is now so on his mind that it informs every single debate he has. I mean, even the bizarre statement, yes, about being being so happy here. And I had just even talking to some of the, uh, the Spanish journalists who were at West Ham yesterday. Um, I and mean, we were obviously discussing Guardiola's comments. And they were saying they'd, they'd like to be, you know, they'd be quite well connected to some of his people from from his time in La Liga. But but they were they were saying that there is the general feeling that Guardiola has found that. He he did think this season was going to be go much more much more easily for him that the Premier League wasn't going to pose this much of a challenge. Okay, Miguel, that's brilliant. Thanks, man. No, no problem. Just a crying big baby, but you cannot call it a player a baby. Coach.
is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen. What happened? I want victory for every game. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? Coach. Which is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen. What happened? Well, it's just the, the nervousness. You look frustrated on the Coach. pitch. Which is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen. What happened? You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Which is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen. What happened? Where do you think you got it all wrong today? We won against them in the Premiership and we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call a player a baby. Refs, you do a good job. Just don't get the credit they deserve though, Ken. Uh, I've, already today, I, I believe that you've spotted an egregious oversight referee related. Well, I, I, I don't want to take the credit for this uh, because it's not me who spotted it. I merely spotted the article in the Times by Henry Winter who spotted this egregious oversight. Right. Henry Winter writes... The most successful Englishman in football at present is not Gary Cahill. Okay. <laughs> I mean, literally the only Chelsea player. Oh, well, you've, it's not Gary you've turned all of our perceptions of football <laughs> head over heels there, uh, Henry. Jordan Henderson, Adam Lallana, or James Miller, competitors vying for the Premier League title. It's not Della Ali, Danny Rose, or Harry Kane pursuing the pace setters. It's not Jamie Vardy, the 5001 champion in football of the year. It is Mark Cladenberg the newly crowned referee of the year, and it is a disgrace <laughs> that one of the few individuals bringing global pride to the national game was overlooked in the New Year honours. It's beyond comprehension. From Wembley to Whitehall, the establishment <laughs> seems, <laughs> oh, un- we hate those guys. seems unfairly sniffy about the 41-year-old from Consett, County Durham. Klatz is not to every... Klatz is in the uh. commas. Is in inverted commas. To be fair, he's he's not, you know, he's he's he is introducing the word class in inverted commas. Is not to everybody's taste with his tattoos marking his achievements in officiating major events, and he might have had MBE inked into any space on his forearms, but Clattenburg's decision making and stamina should be saluted. So okay, and it and it goes on, and and he's making a point. Look, this guy is doing a good job. Did the FA Cup, Champions League, and European Championship finals all last year? Decent um, hat trick or whatever, but isn't this really the same problem that we were talking about with Miguel? The whole notion of a referee becoming a kind of celebrity figure mm. is it puts a referee almost in an invidious position, makes their job more difficult. A referee who becomes a superstar actually has quite a hard job. I mean, there haven't been too many of them. Kalina, obviously, um, Howard Webb was Howard Webb a superstar. Well, the reluctant superstar. I mean, if we're talking about New Year's honours list, I mean, you know, I don't think we've quite reached superstar level. I mean, if you're talking about the, the level required to get an OBE, whichever one is le- less important, OBE is the least important. Well, Henry Winter, Henry Winter uses MBE, and Howard Webb, in fact, has an MBE. Howard Webb has an MBE. Was it given to him after the end of his refereeing career, though? Which... Which is to the point that you're making, which would probably make a bit more sense rather than building someone up. I'm going to see if... uh, Oh, Webb is married with three children. I'm reading Wikipedia. He's a sergeant in the South Yorkshire Police before turning professional as He's appointed a member of the Order of the British Empire. I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. (laughs) In the the 2011 New Year's Honours for services to football. In other words, exactly... um, at the, the point of his career, 
that Mark Kattenberg is at, at pretty much, yes. because he did the World Cup final in 2010. He is a Rotherham United supporter. Um, he's commended for his work in football officiating for being the first man to referee the Champions League final and World Cup final in the same year. Well, there's the difference. World Cup final, European Championship final, cuts no ice. European Championship final in the Queen's New Year's honours. What is this thing they call Europe? You know? Uh, World Cup, I, I know what that is, but European Championship, I'm not even really sure that that's a thing. England are comfortable being a part of the world. They're just this Europe thing, this whole European experiment, maybe. That's not, not sure. Not so much. Yeah, not so much. Well, speaking of the world, um, the whole world, according to Maurizio Pochettino, is going to be on the side of Tottenham Hotspur tomorrow night because they're playing Chelsea. Chelsea are the team that's running away with the Premier League and everybody wants there to be a league. Everybody apart from Chelsea fans wants there to be a league title race. So we're joined by uh, Jack Pitbrook on the line now. Jack, um, Pochettino says the whole world is with Tottenham. They all, everybody wants Tottenham to win. Do you think they can? Um, if anyone can do it, Tottenham can do it. Um, I, think Poch- I think in part that comment owes the fact that Pochettino still feels some annoyance with how popular Leicester were as champions last year in the sense that opposition didn't mind losing to them because they wanted to be part of the Leicester story, which I think is kind of partly true. And Pochettino has said, I think, that he wants to be, he he almost wants to be this year's Leicester to, I presume, Chelsea being last year's Tottenham. Um, And therefore he thinks that he can kind of use this underdog status on behalf for his team to to catch up and win the title this year. Um, whether they can do it or not, I think that... Well, this is this is the best that Tottenham have played, I think, since March or April of last year. They've won four in the trot, but they've been playing so well. I was at Southampton on the 28th of December where they scored four goals, just as they did against Watford the other day. And they were, in fact, I think, far better at Southampton than they were at Watford. They had that kind of old... Um, they had that physical intensity and that power back, which is... What Pochettino wants them to play, wants them to play with, but which they've lacked this year because they just look so tired. But they had ten days off between the Blackburn and Southampton, sorry, between the Burnley and Southampton games, and it really showed in terms of their, um, just in terms of their speed across the pitch and their physical power, and they flattened Saints. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, the way in which last season or the experience last season of sort of the, the friction they might have felt at being the team that everyone wanted to lose. Well, not quite everyone, I think, but but Leicester were, were clearly the more popular um, yeah. choice with most people. But also something else happened last season, which was that Chelsea were the team that stopped Tottenham in the end, and they did it with such malicious glee that I can't imagine a bigger grudge game for Tottenham. Yeah, I mean, glee is exactly the right word. Um, and I think this, you know, that that whole that whole psychological effect of the last few weeks of last season has hit Spurs hard. I think I think that you can't look past that as one of the explanations for why that one win against Manchester City aside, which was good, um, Spurs started the season slowly, and I think there is there is quite a lot of built up resentment and frustration. I think about how how last year went. I mean, what's interesting, I think, about looking back to that Chelsea game is that Pochettino has always said that the reason that Spurs collapsed at the end of last season was mental. He said they weren't, they didn't have the experience, the maturity to, for a title challenge at the end, which I think is kind of half true, but doesn't tell the whole story, which is that it was also a physical failure. Like Spurs were exhausted as, they, as every Pochettino team is by April. 
but Pochettino hates that as an idea because it's he knows it's his greatest failing, I think. Um, and so he says, oh, no, the, the, the problem was entirely mental, and this year we have to take the next step, which is in our heads, which I think is kind of partly true, but, um, but there is a physical aspect there as well. The, the attrition rate at Tottenham doesn't seem too bad, though, at the moment. I mean, this is a difficult part of the season. Uh, and they don't really seem to be showing it too bad. I mean, we, we've spoken to you before about their kind of um, uh, bashing their heads off the wall until the wall gives in, attacking style. Yeah. But something kind of seems to have, have become unblocked in the last few weeks. I mean, they're scoring a lot of goals suddenly. You know, this was this has been the problem all season. Suddenly goals are flying in. You know, Dele Alli is scoring so many goals that Real Madrid apparently wanted to buy him today. So uh, something seems to have changed. Yeah, certainly. I think there's... I think it. I think in part it's a happy coincidence of lots of their important players playing well at the same time. Like Kane is, Kane's playing well. Ali's got five in three. Eriksson's playing as well as he's done all season. Dembele's good, and also Rose and Walker, the two fullbacks, are probably the best two fullbacks in the league at the moment, and probably two of the best in Europe. And I think the the problem Spurs had at the start of the season was Kane was the only player who could score goals, and none of the other players were really contributing. Whereas now. Everyone is contributing in such a way that the burden has actually slightly been lifted off Kane, which in turn makes it easier for him. Um, and they're doing this all without Eric Lamella, who was one of their best players, I think, when they were playing their best football last season. So I think it's, I think it's kind of a happy coincidence of getting everyone fit and firing at the same time. And suddenly they kind of, Pochettino knows what his best team is again, which I think the problem again the first half of the season was, he didn't know what the best team was. He looked like he was chasing it every week, making too many changes, changing the system. Whereas now, for the first time since March or April, you know what Spurs' best team is. Well, that's definitely been the case all season, or at least for most of the season with Chelsea. I mean, the team doesn't change, um, uh, you know, unless unless somebody suspended. Uh, Antonio Conte likes to pick the same team. And, OK, I mean, everyone can see the results are so consistent, but, I mean, how are Chelsea doing this? It's... It's they've already got I think more points than they had in all of last season. Um, obviously, that was a bad season, but nobody expected this. What do you think has happened that everything's fallen into place so beautifully? Well, it's it's remarkable, really. I mean, I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything like it. And no one. It, I mean, it's it is in its own way as unexpected, or probably it's probably more probably more unexpected in the sense of being more unprecedented than the exact opposite which happened last season with this incredible collapse having been champions. Um, I think ultimately, I think the biggest single reason is probably that this seems strange, but it's the lack of European football, which I think is going to be, which I think has been like the, almost the defining factor in the last four or five years of title races in England, in the sense that Leicester won the league last year with no European football. Two years before that, Liverpool nearly won the league with no European football. I think that, the the top end of the game is so intense and managers now come in with such a clear sense of how they want their teams to play that they that benefit you get from those empty midweeks every week is so that's such a structural help for your team and for your coaching that I think that more than anything else and or that has given Conte the basically the space or the the platform to express his his coaching genius um and I think, I mean, and this run, I think, would have been kind of inconceivable without it. But the interesting thing, I think, going forward is that whoever, whichever of the, the kind of big six teams perhaps finishes out of the Europa League spots this year and therefore doesn't have European football next year, 
is going to be the team who you'd have to say is going to be likeliest to win the title. Like, if Manchester City keep keep struggling, wind up finishing seventh, somehow don't get into Europe, and Guardiola stays, you'd have to make them favourites to the title next season for precisely that reason. I can't see all those things happening at the same time, though. I mean, if they finish seventh, Guardiola would be gone. You know, I mean, what I mean is, I, I can I absolutely yeah. take the point about the, about the, you know not having to play in the Champions League. I actually think that's one of the reasons why Tottenham were so bad in the Champions League is that they, on some level, didn't really want to be there because they felt as though this was kind of draining the resources they needed right, for yeah, their main objective. And if Spurs hadn't been in Europe last year, Spurs would have won the title. Hmm. Like I think Spurs, Spurs would have. I think Spurs would happily have gone out of the Europa League at the group stage, to be honest, and then. They, uh, I think they probably wanted to lose to Fiorentina, but didn't. And then they got Borussia Dortmund and kind of threw in the towel. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure Liverpool are probably delighted not to be in Europe this year. If you look at Jurgen Klopp's two Bundesliga wins with Dortmund, one year, I mean, in both seasons they went out of Europe by Christmas through doing very badly in one Champions League group stage and one Europa League group stage. So, you know, I mean, clearly, and, and the year that Klopp reached the Champions League final, which was 2012-13, they did nothing in the Bundesliga. Um, so I think that, you know, he is a manager who knows that that kind of high-intensity style has to choose, ultimately, between domestic and European success. Um, and I think the same is true of Spurs, ultimately. If Spurs were to, I mean, Spurs probably could win the Europa I mean, they're good enough to win the Europa League this year, but if they were to do so they'd have to accept finishing 7th or 8th in the Premier League, which I, they don't want to do. The, the one issue that I have with this, and I absolutely take the point, you know, it is it is clear that there are, there are more demands on a squad like this. In the Champions League, I think, maybe 15 years ago, you, you got so much more money uh, for playing in the Champions League uh, compared to being out of it, that it really made a difference to the quality of your squad. And I'm not really sure that's actually the case anymore for Premier League teams who already are making so much money from the domestic league. But... This idea of sort of opting out of Europe. I mean, Europe is still supposed to be the highest level. I mean, it is the highest level. You know, if you win the Champions League, that's the biggest thing you can win. That means that you've at some point had to beat Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Juventus, Bayern Munich. These are the teams that European, uh, that English clubs should really be testing themselves against. It's not really good enough for them to say, oh, you know, we can't we can't do both. I mean, uh, the the Champions League final a couple of years ago, Bayern and or rather Juventus and Barcelona, whichever one of them won was going to win a treble. You know, Bayern have won the yeah. treble recently. It seems that other teams in other uh, countries are able to do this. Yeah, that's true. I think that I think that I think so. I think there's a few issues here. One is that there's this sense that you have maybe you have to go out of Europe to become good enough to get back into it. Like you have to, um, you know, going out of Europe is the only way that you can kind of give yourself the space to start again, have a bit of a relaunch like Chelsea having this year to kind of prepare yourself for an assault on it in a few years time. But I think the, the bigger question you made about prestige, I said, I agree that pre- <clears throat> ultimately prestige relies on European success. But I think that perhaps English teams, perhaps it, it comes down to the fact that English teams are more folk. Ultimately, they're more focused on winning the Premier League, which they think is kind of more reachable, even if it's physically harder than winning the Champions League, which is probably less likely at the start of a season, but perhaps not quite as physically demanding. Or rather, to win the Champions League, you have to be good in a kind of technical, tactical way, which English teams aren't. 
whereas being good enough to win the Premier League is more of a kind of running contest and it's not as hard or it's, it's not as complex to prepare the team to be able to do that. So who do you think is going to win tomorrow night's running contest? Uh, I think it'll be a draw. I, can't, I don't think Chelsea will win. I mean, in a sense, it's, this is amazing because it's such a kind of history test for Chelsea because obviously they break the record if they win. And it's almost, it's probably the hardest game they could get. Like Spurs are, I mean, I know United have won six in the trot, but Spurs are playing better than United. And so for Chelsea to be going to Spurs to break this record rather than just playing Sunderland at home is a, it's a fantastic gift for, you know, the Premier League product and t- TV and so on. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown! Just listen to the music of the traffic in the Six foot nine outside here! On the sidewalk where the neon sign is rejected by Parker! This shot, nothing but net. You can't forget all your troubles. Coast to coast by the Americans. Downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No final place for sure. Downtown. If Pep Guardiola finishes seventh with Man City this year, he's definitely going to be gone. Well, I think the reason, the the reason I say that is not. I mean, I don't think that they would sack him mm. because where would they be then? I mean, what are they going to do then? They, they, there's no one they can go to who'd be better, you know, who's who's proven, mm. who's proven to be better. This is the guy they've wanted Alan all Kirby along. <laughs> there, there are, there are, there are options, and and there is somebody out there who would be better. You know, there's the 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 people are out there. You know, this is this is a fact. You know, there are there are undiscovered great managers who whose best work is yet ahead of them the finding them is the difficult part they no you know no one at manchester city would want pep Guardiola to go the thing that i would weren't wonder about and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with miguel is the effect on him of finishing so uh, low down if you know if they were to finish seven i mean that's a catastrophic uh season for them really humiliating and i just wonder what kind of mood he'd be in by the end of that, and whether he would want to continue. We should on really anymore. be talking about sixth, though. Really, I mean, he's he's not going to finish seventh. Well, I mean, if they if they get into a position where they might finish sixth, you could imagine them finishing seventh quite easily. Actually, you could you could see. Well, there's nine points at the moment so between, between sixth and seventh. I mean, I mean I, if Tony Pulis at West Brom finish ahead of Pep Guardiola, I mean, <laughs> well, this, yeah, I mean, okay, this, it's obviously unlikely. But you know, I feel if the if they did if the season did go that badly wrong for them, Guardiola, I think, would be in such a uh, state by the end of it that he might. I think if I think if he was to I think if if we're saying if he wasn't to be there next season, I think it would be at his instigation rather than at theirs. And I wouldn't necessarily rule out the possibility if the if things have if things between now and then really do go that badly. Okay, well, we'll be back later today with a show that features a full roundup of the festive rugby. Uh, but for now, that's pretty much it, folks. I'd like to thank you, Ken, for your work here today. Thank you very much, Ken, for thank your work you, here today. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Simon, and uh, thanks for listening. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.